Good afternoon. Is this on? Could this be put on? Is this on? Still not on. Now it's on. I can't turn it on. But then I do that like that. How's that? How's that? How's that? Ed, you're gonna have to bend. I'm sorry, it doesn't work. Froma, take care of this for me. No. Shh. How's that? Okay, I'll speak up. I'm Sean Wilentz, and I'm here to welcome you on behalf of the American Studies Program to the conference, which is one of the co-sponsors proudly of the conference as a whole. I've been asked to make... <laughs> Like that? <laughs> I'm a nice Jewish boy. You don't want to. Or I was a nice Jewish boy. I've been asked to make a couple of announcements. First, uh, this is a packed house, and um, if any of you with an earshot want to try and um, hear the remarks today, there is an over there are overflow rooms available simulcast. You can actually see us on TV. Big screen. Downstairs in B level. Don't you all get up at once and run down there or anything. Um, a couple of other announcements. This evening at 8.30 p.m. in this very same room with, one hopes, a better microphone, um, Ben Catcher, the um, what shall I say, the, the genius illustrator, will be uh, giving an illustrated lecture, um, basically using the medium of the, of the comic strip um, to talk about image worship or idol worship. Um, ben Catcher is a MacArthur Fellow, and he's published several important collections of his own cartoons and graphic art. And he will be here at 8.30 this evening. Tomorrow the conference will pick up at 9 o'clock in the morning, a session on American ironies with James Atlas, Morris Dickstein, and Daniel Mendelssohn. Then at 11, there'll be a session on the Holocaust from here. Leslie Epstein, Melvin Jules Bukwit, Bukit, excuse me, Thane Rosenbaum, and James Young. And then at 2 uh, tomorrow afternoon, there will be a session on comics with Will Eisner, Jules Pfeiffer, and Art Spiegelman. And finally, a set of concluding remarks by Dan Mendelson and Michael Wood. Anything else from? Very good. Phew. The hard part's over. Edgar Lawrence Dockrow was born in New York City. He attended Kenyon College, where he studied philosophy and literature under a very distinguished faculty, including James John Crow Ransom. Following his graduation in 1952, he undertook graduate study at Columbia University, but was drafted into the Army. He spent two years in Germany. A senior editor for the New American Library from 1959 to 1964, he became editor-in-chief at the Dial Press in 1964. In 1969-1970, Dr. was appointed writer-in-residence at the University of California at Irvine, and he has since held similar positions at Sarah Lawrence, here at Princeton, at the Yale School of Drama, and he currently holds the Glucksman Chair in American Letters at New York University. His professional writing career began with the publication of Welcome to Hard Times in 1960, followed by Big as Life and the Book of Daniel. His play, Drinks Before Dinner, was originally produced by the New York Shakespeare Festival. His novel, Ragtime, of 1975, secured him the popular and critical acclaim that his subsequent novels have also received, Loon Lake, World's Fair, Billy Bathgate, a collection of short stories, Lives of the Poets, The Waterworks, and Last Year's City of God. Several of his novels have been made into films, and in the case of Ragtime, into both a film and a Broadway musical. And that's not even to mention his numerous forceful essays of literary criticism, historical interpretation, and political commentary. Quote, fiction, 
Dr. Rowe has written, is not an entirely rational means of discourse. And his millions of fortunate readers have long savored his own rich admixture of irrationality and stunning exactness. Take, for example, the opening of the novel City of God, his latest. We start, literally it seems, at the very beginning, with the Big Bang, and with the novel's protagonist, Everett, reflecting that a God responsible for such a genesis is not only beyond our comprehension, but bereft of consolation. Then, suddenly, Everett is at a New York dinner party, New York City dinner party, whispering sweet somethings to another man's wife. Just as suddenly, we're inside the head of the Reverend Tom Pemberton, who finds pieces, bits and pieces from his shabby Episcopalian church scattered for sale on the pushcarts of the Lower East Side. And then, slam bang, we're listening to the Midrash Jazz Quartet performing rabbinical commentary on the lyrics of Me and My Shadow. St. <laughs> Augustine meets S.J. Perelman. Throughout his writing, Dr. O has also unleashed his imagination on American history, which is why I suppose I've been given the great honor of introducing him to you today. As a fictional historian, a creator of false documents, he has managed in his novels to show the interconnectedness of American lives in ways that have eluded the rest of us. He has recaptured lost landscapes, geographical, emotional, and political, with a sweetness that never turns sentimental and with an extraordinary passion for detail, from the grandeur of the Trilon and Perisphere to the zaniness of the old movie-selected short subjects like Lou Lair's monkey pictures where the monkeys rode bikes and wore diapers and sat in high chairs to eat baby food to the most mundane domestic arrangements of Bronx working class life. For all of these efforts, Dr. O has justly received, among many other honors, the National Book Critics Circle Award, the National Book Award, the Penn Faulkner Award, a John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship, both the Arts and Letter Award and the William Dean, Howell, William Dean Howells Medal of the American Academy and National Institute of Arts and Letters, and just this year, the Award in Writing Arts from the National Foundation of Jewish Culture. I am delighted, as well as honored, to present our conference keynote speaker and his topic, Literature as Assimilation, ladies and gentlemen, E.L. Doctorow. Very pleased to see uh, my colleagues here who I haven't seen in a while. It's an act of generosity on their part to be here. A piece of, about Jewish American writing in a recent issue of The Nation magazine, Professor Morris Dickstein, one of our conferees, recalls a time a few years ago when Aaron Applefeld, the Israeli writer, said in a lecture at New York University, and I quote now, that Jewish writing was grounded in the Yiddish culture and way of life that had flourished in Eastern Europe, something that died with I.B. Singer in New York and S.Y. Agnon in Israel. He said that while there were certainly writers who happened to be Jews, there really were no more Jewish writers. Close quote. Well, I was there that evening to be included among the inauthentic. <laughs> Applefeld was recalling a rich pre-war shtetl culture when the Yiddish language was the exclusive province of Jewish writers and their audience. But what he neglected to acknowledge was that Yiddish was no less a language of the diaspora than English. Ivy Singer didn't seem to realize that either. Whenever he had the chance, he admonished Israeli writers for writing in Hebrew. Of course, both men were in mourning for a lost civilization. But it was the hermetic social circumstance of structural anti-Semitism in Europe that brought forth the Yiddish language. Only Jews wrote and read Yiddish. It was an enclave culture. Whereas contemporary Jewish American writers write in English, a language not theirs alone. 
They can do this because America is everyone's diaspora. So I thought Appleville's thesis flawed. An intellectualized nostalgia for a golden age of writers and readers in close association with manifold subtle understandings between them, a textured literature, music of enormous possibilities, something deeply to be mourned, of course, but not at the expense of depriving Jewish writers in English their identification as Jewish writers. Subsequently, at a conference Appelfeld and I attended in Prague, my dear colleague insisted that Jewish assimilation was in large, a large part responsible for the Holocaust. A shockingly distasteful notion, to my mind, blaming the victims. And when I thought of Kafka and Einstein and Freud and Walter Benjamin and Gertrude Colmar and Hannah Arendt, it occurred to me Appelfeld's position about Jewish-American writers only happening to be Jews could be said about these German-writing Jews as well and was possibly more a religious characterization of secularism than anything else. In its bitterness, it put me in mind of religious orthodoxy when it takes upon itself to decide who is a Jew and who is not and the punishment that necessarily descends on those who betray the covenant. Clearly, Mr. Leonard Milberg, a true bibliophile, has ignored such arguments and gone his own widely embracing way. And I presume he collected me from my early days. But the truth is that for many years, the American Jewish cultural establishment felt as Appelfeld did about my writing. Not that it was a matter of my writing in English, but that nevertheless I was a writer who just happened to be Jewish. Well, all of that, and this is the news I'm bringing at this moment, all of that seems now to have changed. American Jewry has finally come around to acknowledging me. I've been publishing books since the 1960s, but since last year, when I published City of God, in which an Episcopal priest, Tom Pemberton, converts to Judaism <laughs> and marries Sarah Blumenthal, a rabbi, the Jewish cultural awards, the speaking invitations from Jewish organizations, <laughs> so on, just poured in. Which shows, of course, that the book may not have been read too carefully. My rabbi, Sarah Blumenthal, officiates at the Synagogue of Evolutionary Judaism, <laughs> a tiny green shoot of a branch somewhat to the left of Reconstructionism. Still, I have written books before this, Ragtime World's Fair, in which Jewish characters have major roles. But in these novels, as I think about it, their Jewish identity is unselfconsciously lived and embraced by my characters and not obsessed over. It's possible I wouldn't have endeared myself, of course, with the publication a few years ago of Billy Bathgate, a novel in which a Jewish gangster, Dutch Schultz, plays a major role. And, of course, I have also written novels in which there are no Jewish characters at all. So all of these are factors to consider, but I think the key to this mystery, if it is one, is that third novel of mine, published in 1971, titled The Book of Daniel, a novel about our country during the Cold War, in which my Jewish characters, a husband and wife, happen to be communists who are tried and executed for passing along the secret of the atom bomb to the Soviet Union. A slight problem there. I remember one critic writing in the New York Times Book Review said of the book of Daniel, as he said also of Joseph Heller's Catch-22, that it was flawed by being, quote, adversarial to the republic, close quote. Adversarial to the republic. A Jewish critic, actually, fellow from the love-it-or-leave-it school of criticism. 
talk about assimilation. I'm pleased to see from even a cursory look at the catalog of Jewish American writers in the Milberg collection that it has an expansive vision, 20th and 21st century writers and poets in English, as well as Yiddish writers and poets from the immigrant generations. The bibliophiles always have the last word, don't they? They will collect us because they find meaning in what we do, and we can take some satisfaction in knowing that after we've journeyed on, no matter how unread our books may be, they will at least have a place on some library shelf somewhere adhering to the volumes on either side of them. It should be apparent now that I'm pleased to be collected as a Jewish American writer, but the truth is I would be just as pleased to be collected for any reason whatsoever. <laughs> the more kinds of collections there are, the more I may be collected. It is to the novelist's advantage to be seen as fitting into as many critical, literary, and sociological categories as possible. Jewish-American novelists, novelists born in the 30s, <laughs> historical novelists, novelists who write traditional narrative, novelists who do not, <laughs> novelists who set their novels in New York, novelists who experiment with disreputable genres, novelists who rely on fictive narrators, political novelists, popular novelists, difficult-to-read novelists. I might hope to appear in all such collections, but only when it appears that literary standards seem to prevail, as they do here, of course. You will notice the numbers of Jewish-American hacks who are found in the publishing house catalogs are not included in the Milberg collection. No detective story writers, no science fictioneers, no crass commercial bestseller writers, and so on. And although I wonder about Mr. Milberg's omission of this or that writer for whom I have some regard, it is clear that decisions of a well-read and sophisticated literary intelligence have been operative. So a great resource has been made available to scholars and literary historians and critics, possibly some of whom someday will attempt to find that which is common to all these books and justifies them as a bibliographical unity a defining Jewishness. I say good luck to them. And having begun to speak of that intractable issue, I find it necessary at this point to give you a few autobiographical bona fides, something I'm not in the habit of doing, but useful if you will need some ad hominem material to reply to the argument I will be making this afternoon. Because my sort of Jewishness seems to have seen its heyday. Or say rather, I'm not sure anymore if I'm merely alone in what I represent, a constituency of one or a member of a silent majority. I grew up the son of first-generation Americans born in New York City. It was their parents who, as young people, as yet unmarried, arrived separately, not at Ellis Island, but at Castle Garden in the 1880s having emigrated from white Russia, now called Belarus. My father's father, Isaac Doctorow, was a teenager when he arrived in 1885. He'd come over in despair of the life that faced him in Russia, the ever-present murderous whimsy of the amiable pogromists of the time, and more closely and stultifyingly the rabbinically run village life that demanded fealty to what seemed to him arbitrary ancient proscriptions to induce catatonia, and which offered absolutely no practical means of answering to the poverty and slavery and degradation delivered by the Russian world outside the shtetl. Normative Judaism was neither life nor hope for my grandfather. It was praying your way to death. At any rate, when he was settled in New York, ensconced on the Lower East Side and apprenticed to a printer, he immediately rolled, enrolled in a class on socialism taught by a well-known legal scholar of the time named Morris Hillquit and was rewarded as class Victorian with the gift of an unabridged dictionary. By the time I was old enough to know him and think about him, he was elderly and living in the Bronx, a gentle, slim, and handsome man with fine white hair. I, Doctorow, was the way he signed his name. 
He was a retired printer, a chess player. We played chess whenever I visited. And he was a voracious reader with a library I was always invited to dip into, books in English, Russian, and Yiddish. From my grandfather, I first heard the names Tolstoy and Chekhov. And when I was 10 years old, he gave me for my birthday his copy of Tom Paine's Age of Reason, that still eloquent and classic attack on a fundamentalist reading of the Bible. Paine was a deist. You remember his line, my own mind is my church. And he subjected the Bible to an analysis of its inconsistencies, contradictions, and fantasies but mostly for its statements and assertions that simply made no sense. Not for Paine, the intricate and imaginative work of Midrash. Age of Reason is the reason today why, despite his crucial service to the American Revolution, Paine is not considered a major figure among the founding fathers. Too much of a loose cannon he was, as writers often are. As we sat playing chess, my grandfather and Isaac was an island of sweet calm amid the maelstrom of activity going on around him. This maelstrom was my grandmother, Gussie, a tiny, sprightly woman who wore her hair in a crown of braid who, unlike her husband, was devout in her belief. She'd come over from the same village in the Mintz district. They had known each other casually in the old country and found something more going on between them only after living near each other on the Lower East Side. She was living with her widowed mother when he courted her. Gussie Doctorow was rigorous in her observances. She kept an impeccably kosher household and went off to sit upstairs in the synagogue every chance she had. A great complaint was that in her lifelong arguments about religion with her non-believing husband, he could quote the Bible more accurately than she. And of course, skeptic or not, I, Dr. O, came to my bar mitzvah and sat there moist-eyed and proud as I read my passage, which, by the way, in the manner of bar mitzvah preparation in the Bronx in those days, I didn't understand a word of. Hebrew being taught by rote for memorization with no concern for what the words meant. My father, Dave, was the second of Isaac and Gussie's three children, and the life of my own family, of my own father and mother, this same male-female dynamic prevailed. My mother, Rose, was a musician, as her immigrant father before her. As a girl, she played the piano for silent movies to earn money for her lessons. She and my father met as teenagers, and after they married in the 1920s, they liked to hang out in Greenwich Village when it was a bohemian mecca alive with poets, actors, and musicians. But as they grew older and his life became harder, my father was by then the struggling proprietor of a music shop. This was the Depression. My mother Rose became active in the sisterhood of the local synagogue, and every Friday night she lit the candles and put her hand over her blue eyes and said the blessing and threw in a few silent prayers for good measure. My father never went near the synagogue. He believed, like his father, that the problems of earth must be solved on earth and that religion must not be used as it had historically as a means of persuading people to live under conditions of social injustice. So what is the point of all this? It is my belief that the profound incompatibility of opposing ideas expressed in all the complex love flowing to a child of that family was a necessary condition of the child's creative gifts, who grew into adulthood, having combined with himself both the secular humanism and the impulse to reverence of the male-female lines of his elders. I think of it as a spiritual sort of alternating current, wherein never at rest I swing constantly back and forth from one pole to another which, if you think about it, is the most expansive arc for a writer's mind. As the son of my father's, the refusal to abandon one's intellect for the sake of a dutiful reverence, non-observant, a celebrant of the radical humanist Jewish sensibility that in an earlier age expressed the demand for workers' rights and women's suffrage and had no time or patience for God. 
a time when for every religious fellow who went daily with his sitter to the synagogue, there was one sitting in a cafe reading Abraham Kahan's forward. But as the son of my mother's, an inability to discard reverence, however unattached, in recognition that a revealed relation to something larger than ourselves, a felt sense of the sacred, can engage the whole human being as the intellect cannot, capable of a sweet recognition for the peace and order and resolution of tradition keeping is when I see a mother and father and their small children holding their hands, all of them dressed in their Saturday best as they walk to the synagogue. I understand from biblical scholarship that the Ten Commandments have a generic form. They are modeled on the Lord and vassal treaties of ancient Mesopotamia. They are man-made. But I am profoundly grateful for the biblical minds who crafted them to structure civilization on an ethically conceived family life, a life that leads us to live in states of moral consequence that, if not yet, may someday bring us closer to a union with or an understanding of what Einstein, with his scrupulously precise scientific humanistic outlook, could only bring himself to call the old one, the old one. So how is this all played out? Coming of this conflicted household, moneyless but highly articulate and filled with books and music, a privileged childhood as I understand that now. From the time I began to read, it never occurred to me to wonder about an author's religious background. Am I alone in this? As a boy, I read Jack London and Mark Twain and Charles Dickens, among others. And whatever their religious preference might have been never crossed my mind. Were they Christians? Perhaps in some unconscious way I knew that their background was not Jewish. But in fact, they were not Christians either. They were Jack London, Mark Twain, and Charles Dickens. And if you think this was a selective blackout on my part, I'll admit that however strongly circumstantial the evidence may have been, as a high school student, I didn't think of Kafka, I.B. Singer, and Saul Bellow as Jews. I thought of them as Kafka, Singer, and Bellow. I read them and was inspired by them when I was just starting out, but it was never the case of any thought, sort of ethnic bonding with them. They were each two spectacularly themselves, transcendent. Of course, the writer's background, religious tradition, nationality, lived life is crucially directive as to what she writes about, whom and where. But as a reader, I find it quite beside the point that Garcia Marquez is a Catholic from Colombia, or Jane Austen is an Anglican from Britain, as instrumental as their cultures may have been in forming them. Dostoevsky is a fanatically Orthodox Christian from Russia. He's insane. What else could he be? But there's another religion the Great Ones practice in their art, and it has no name. Or to change the metaphor, I wonder if the great fiction and the great poetry is not down to its deepest roots secular. W.H. Auden once said that a writer's politics are more of a danger to him than his cupidity. I would add that the writer's religion is as much a danger to him as his politics. Certainly in this country we worry that if a work is formed by ideas exterior to it, if there's some sort of programmed intention, a set of truths to be illustrated, the work will be compromised and will produce not art but some form of polemic. We will have corrupted the occasion and betrayed the calling. Having cut my teeth on the existentialist fictions of Camus and Sartre, I tend to think of them, contrarian as they are, as somehow emblematic of the digging in of the heels that is characteristic of all authorship, as an artifact created of its author's self-differentiation the successful novel must necessarily lack the, the humility of reverence, the surrendering quality of the religious spirit. True surrender for an author would find all that needs to be written in the sacred text of his religion. 
this is clearly not something to occur to Proust or even the biblically melancholic Bernard Melamed. I would, of course, speak similarly of poets. The Israeli poet Yehuda Amakai went down fighting all the way. Dante, right from the heart of Roman Catholicism, builds his own tripartite version of the afterlife, populates hell with his Florentine enemies, wanders through it with a pagan mentor, and most shockingly of all, as our colleague Harold Bloom has shown us, exalts Beatrice to the point of blasphemy. And the great devoutly religious poet Gerard Manley Hopkins springs from his palpably elastic lines in image bursts of inspiration right up out of Christianity into poetry. All writers worth the name are unaffiliated. The novelist, the poet, will understand the institutions they live within, including their religious traditions, as aggregate historically amended fictions. Appointing themselves as witnesses, they are necessarily independent of all institutions and with no necessary obligation to defend any of them, even the institution of the family, which is why there is nothing to make family members more nervous than the discovery that one of them is a writer. They will not quite understand that the writer of the most personalist story, a Romana Clay of her own family life or marriage, can be read as protesting the large social structures of the society or the terrible injustice of our brutal, ordinary human inadequacy. There's a great line of Ralph Waldo Emerson's from his essay on Goethe, the writer. Speaking of writing in general, Emerson says, anything that can be thought can be written. The writer is the faculty of reporting and the universe is the possibility of being reported. The writer is the faculty of reporting and the universe is the possibility of being reported. In Emerson's day, of course, the word universe did not evoke thoughts of the Big Bang. It, it only meant uh, everything. It's such an American thing to say. Think about it. He says the answer is not in yet. The story is not finished. If the universe is the possibility of being reported, there are infinite ascriptions ahead. There's no end in sight to the variable genius of human character and the full expression of human capacity. Our literatures, along with all our intellectual disciplines, endow us with a multiplicity of voices to give us the hope of a self-revising consensual reality that inches forward over the generations to a dream of truth. I believe that. If I observe any faith, it's surely that one. As a corollary and at the risk of sounding ungrateful, I will say that however well-intentioned, constructive, and generous in spirit it may be to label the work of any group of writers as if their value is first and foremost local, the pride of the neighborhood as if they are uniformly bound in the cultural context in which they find themselves, is to run the risk of portraying them as a chorus rather than as individual soloists, as the impossible divas and the unconscionable upstagers that they in fact are. And it seems not to recognize the truth that every author responds to all of the given literature. Every book is an answer to some other book and the conversation crosses borders and spans generations. Of course, I understand the hunkering down of all of us into our group loyalties in the past 30 or 40 years. There's enough wretchedly catastrophic history behind us to explain why that has happened. And I point out that the phrase political correctness was originally devised on the political right to mock or defame the effort or even to undermine the desire of people of the ethnic, racial, and gender minorities to articulate their own identities instead of accepting the stereotypical and demeaning identities that historically have been laid upon them. In many ways, political correctness has been socially constructive. People should take pride and satisfaction in who and what they are.
the Reconstructionist Rabbi Mordecai Kaplan makes the distinction between separateness and otherness. Ideally, it is not separateness but otherness that is practiced by the hunkering down of citizens to be who they are while also of the larger community. Nevertheless, with all of this said, as to all our hunkering down, I think there is something peculiar and, in fact, politically inert going on. When I walk into a bookstore and see it sectioned off with shelves devoted to gay and lesbian writers or Afro-American writers, as if the expected readers for these books can only be gays and lesbians or Afro-Americans, as if the writers of these books have something to say only to gays and lesbians or Afro-Americans, as if Edmund White or Toni Morrison are consumer products, or as if the genres are primary and the writers secondary, as in inspirational or cooking or self-help. So we arrive now at the title for this talk, Literature as Assimilation. As you may have gathered by now, I will not use the word assimilation as it is used in the American rabbinical community. There it connotes a problematical trade-off. While it suggests a gratifying integration to the great American diaspora, it means as well the disappearance of Jewish identity and tradition, the devolution of a rich and complex culture as Jews marry Gentiles, for example, and cease to observe the rituals and practices, the disappearance of Jews into a large, larger secular American identity and, and, and rabbis worry about this. When I speak of literature as assimilation, what is assimilated, of course, is the larger culture into the specificity of the book's representations. So I mean just the opposite of what the rabbis mean. It is America that is being assimilated when a true book, a true poem, enlarges the cast of stubborn humanity. Something has happened, some small thing, some new synaptic recognition fires, uh, a new little nourishing artery is opened up into the national mind or even the global mind. Different people of different appearances and dictions may rise from book to book, but the crisis of human consciousness is always revealed as universal. So <clears throat> here is the story thus far. I began by denying that a writer who did not write in the Yiddish language could not be a Jewish writer. Then I claim my place as a Jewish-American writer, eminently gratified to be included in a collection of Jewish-American writers. Then I was ungracious enough to say that, in fact, any bibliographical classification would satisfy me as long as it didn't claim to be definitive. Then that given the resurgence of Jewish religious observance in the last 30, 40 years, which I understand but from which I feel isolated, I suspect that my occasional unstructured bouts of reverential feeling in the context of a prevailing humanistic skepticism leaves me alone among most of my younger peers of Jewish American writers. As one who feels that established religion as a socio-ethnic phenomenon is given entirely too much deference in our culture and essentially does not often change anything for the better in the world's arrangements. I even have gone so far as to suggest that even this benign and sweetly generous bibliographical philanthropy we celebrate today is not an unequivocal good. Talk about loose cannon. And I question any subcultural division of literature as a modification of the literary project, which I see in Emersonian terms as rising from an unmediated Gnosticism that asserts the supreme authority of the lonely, unenslaved mind, and that the universe is there to be reported and the writer as the faculty of reporting may not as a mortal being be autonomous, but that the true work of literary art that may happen to be created does transcend its own circumstances and is autonomous, while it will announce indisputably the author's feet of clay. It will flash forth a light from its own time and place across borders and through the ages. And of all of this contrariness isn't typically Jewish, I don't know what is. <laughs> okay. 
the same time, I can't deny that the self-differentiating spirit that Melville calls the isolato hovers about me as it always has all my life, but seems now to reside even more darkly in my mind since this new century began a few weeks ago. I think foolishly, if only literature could, without betraying itself, call upon followers. But it cannot. Literature does not call upon followers. It is invariably bipolar, the doubt always imminent in its assertion. There is always a no inside the yes and a yes inside the no. It pervades moral complexity, paradox, irony, pathos, human failure, and the failure, comic or tragic, of human institutions. It says this is how it feels, this is the way things are. And so doing it confounds simplistic belief, it resists the constriction of freedom that attaches to society's aggregate fictions, which, by their inertia, instill a stupor of thought. But literature does not call upon followers. Or should I say literature since the Bronze and Iron Age? Because the ancestral literatures, the sacred texts of our religions, those residual communal stories that have made us who we are, do call upon followers. Since the 11th of September, I've been thinking about these ancient writings. Of course, there are hard, real political understandings to apply to the catastrophe. But one way to look at it is to understand that the terror inflicted by these religiously brainwashed nihilists was designed in that part of the world where, for many people, the universe is not the possibility of being reported because it has been accounted for, attributed in its entirety, now and forever, by a supreme author. It is inconceivable in an absolutist theocracy, a country run by religious diktat, it is inconceivable in any society where the answers are already given and the rules of life are inflexible, and the authority for all thought is the ruling modality that free expression and the multiplicity of witness can be anything but an abomination, a danger to the state or an affront to God, God or the state having done all the writing that was necessary for all time. So the underlying conflict could be understood as between the old stories and the new. The ancient revealed as divine writings and the writings of our later civilizations whose authors are mortal, multiple, and while lacking any holy credential or indeed necessary exemption from evil of their own, are engaged in reporting the universe. We writers all take note of Henry James' idea that from one fragment of conversation overheard by the writer, the novel of a whole life and culture could be projected. And not necessarily a fragment of conversation could be an image, a phrase of music, a felt injustice. Any excitement to the writer's mind so mysteriously evocative that it flowers into a novel. This in microcosm iterates the Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe, which has it that from the smallest happenstance of a singular moment, the entire universe blew out into its dimension, exploded in one silent flash into the volume and chronology of space-time. The intuitive use of the smallest amount of information to create a fictional world suggests the little bang of the writer's inspiration. And if this comparison seems outlandish, it is less so if we bring God in whose image we are made into the discussion. And it becomes possible to understand that the ancient storytellers of the oral tradition, whose systematic fictions were to be recorded eventually in the sacred texts, would have attributed them or their inspiration to God, would have attributed to God the revelatory understandings that come of the practice of storytelling when it is done righteously, that is, in the belief that it is a system of knowledge. Are you with me here so far? Why are the sacred texts so subject then, so vulnerable to diverse interpretation? So that while providing us with the ethical structure for living, 
a sense of the moral immensity of human life, they can be so passionately read by their fundamentalist interpreters as a license to kill. I would answer in part that they were composed in the ages of mankind when language didn't wake, work the way it works today. They were composed when utilitarian communication was exalted, when cosmology was religion, when social identity would have to come from God, when all life under God was an allegory. The sacred texts of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam were produced or revealed in those ages when stories were all people had. They were the very first system of knowledge. Knowledge, experience, was stored and transmitted in the form of stories. And as they were passed along orally before they were written, long before they were written, stories defined the powers to which their listeners were subject and advised how to live with them. They were as valuable to survival as a club or a sharpened bone. They bound the present to the past. They connected the visible to the invisible. They distributed this suffering so that it could be born. There was no distinction made between fact and fiction, between religious belief and scientific discourse, between ordinary communication and poetry. All the modes of language which we now divide and distinguish according to the situation we're in or the discipline we practice were indivisible. Language, it is said, was holophrastic, and the act of telling a story carried a presumption of truth. And so the sacred texts of all the religions are cryptic. They are enigmatic. Cognitive mysteries inhere in the self-authenticating scriptural voice. And people over the ages have found in the sacred texts what they have wanted to find. And when such geniuses as Bacon and Galileo insisted on putting claims of knowledge to the test with observation and experiment, another system of knowledge blew into being. Stories were no longer the prime means of understanding the world. And since the Enlightenment, it is only children who continue to believe that stories are, by the fact of their being told, true. Children and fundamentalists. In the histories of civilization, the right of authorship has slowly devolved from God and his prophets and priests to everyone. Wars have been fought, orthodoxies have been thrown off, human consciousness has gone through revolutions, and human beings have been reconceived in freedom in order for this to have happened. Stories still work. Our minds are still structured for storytelling. All the writers and poets here this afternoon are practitioners of this ancient system that fuses the special vocabularies of modern intelligence. But now authors are mortal. Every author has a name. And every story has to make it on its own. Well, all of this is a kind of secular humanist canticle I'm singing, and perhaps of no real relevance to the person of faith whose life shines with decent and well-meant conduct and whose being is healthy with joyous conviction. I see not a few such shining faces here before me. But it is as a secular nation that we are now defending ourselves. Our major sin, having been committed over 200 years ago when religion and the state were rent asunder and worship was consigned to private life. Paradoxically, given our freedom of religious choice, there is no more religiously active country than ours. Tocqueville and Dickens both, when they came over here, were astonished at how much God there was in American society. Only under our principle of religious freedom is such a continuous national uproar of praying and singing and studying and fasting and confessing and atoning and praising and preaching and dancing and dunking and vowing and quaking and shaking and abstaining and ordaining possible. But you see, there are necessarily theological implications in our genius of a democracy. Its pluralism is exactly what drives fundamentalists crazy. For if you have extracted the basic ethics of religious invention and found the mechanism for implanting them in the statutes of the secular civil order, such as the Constitution and the civil rights, 
but have consigned all the doctrine and rite and ritual, all the symbols and traditional practices to the precincts of private life, you are saying there is no one proven path to salvation. You speak of traditions. You say the old stories are relegated to the personal choices of private worship and that the ineffable is ineffable. We know nothing, and in terms of a possible theological triumphalism, everything is up for grabs. That has to be a profound offense to the fundamentalists who, by definition, must be intolerant of all forms of belief but his own, all stories but his own. We certainly do not have to embrace the secular glories of modernism, which include nuclear weapons, environmental ruin, impersonal economic structures that produce mass poverty and severe forms of alienation in many parts of the world, to see, nevertheless, that for the religious extremists, the idea of the sacred is implanted in the same antediluvian circuits of the brain where reside our tribal fears and hatreds. How, given what has happened in the last few weeks, and it's only the beginning, can we avoid concluding that fundamentalism is finally the truest expression of the religious sensibility? compared to which the move away from literalism in contemporary Christianity and Judaism and Islam, the acceptance of the concept of scriptural events as having metaphorical rather than literal truth, the opening up of the liturgical privilege, sociological emphasis on community welfare, the re-engineering of the religious words by theologians to accommodate everything the secular intellect has taught us, these liberalizing trends in the past hundred years or so may be seen with some justice as weakenings, enervations, even contaminations, may be seen finally as not religious enough. Historically, proprietary religion has always had a murderous edge to it, as if piety itself has a flawed circuit that tends to blow. Devotion to God becomes the will to power. Nietzsche understood the politics of God. The religious idea may now be declaring itself only tenable in its simple atavistic interpretation of the ancient texts as coming to the fulfillment of God's word in the pure form of the theocratic state. The feeling is inescapable that in the diffuse waverings of liberal religion and its silences under the bombs that the fundamentalists have a lock on God. As if time is a loop, as if civilization is in reverse. As we arm ourselves against holy warriors, the presidential and mayoral assurances that we Americans stand tough do not seem to me to define our spiritual resolve with a requisite profundity. That can only come of an aroused self-definition that is in accord with our true nature as a society. Am I the only one to find it surreal when the murderer, the murderer, and the mourner both prayed to God? If we're to reconstitute ourselves, we have to accept and indeed make explicit what is implicit in our history. The ethical injunctions of the religions, their positive social values have been codified in the advanced democracies with reference to no higher authority than civil law. If our constitution not only separated church and state, but adapted as the basis of civil law something of the best essence of the Judeo-Christian Islamic ethical systems, was there not only a separation, but an appropriation which largely goes unremarked by our more passionate preachers. Since the providing genius of the ancient texts thousands of years ago, the moral advances of the human race have come not of religious, but of secular institutions. The concept of a democracy and its attendant freedoms was one such incredible major advance. The concept of a world court of human rights is another such budding advance. Constitutional scholars are accustomed to speak of the American civil religion, but perhaps 200 years or so ago, something happened in terms not of national history, but of human history that has yet to be realized. 
Suppose then that in the context of a hallowed secularism, the idea of God could be recognized as something evolving, as civilization has evolved, that God can be redefined and recast as the human race inches forward toward consensual metaphysical and scientific visions of truth, with the understanding, in other words, that human history does show a pattern at least of progressively sophisticated metaphors so that we pursue a theology thus, teleology thus far that in the universe still to be reported has given us only the one substantive indication of itself that we as human beings live in states of moral consequence. Dare we hope that the theologians, the priests, the rabbis, the ministers, the imams might emancipate themselves so as to articulate or perceive another possibility for us in our quest for the sacred. Not just a new chapter, not just a new reading, but a new story. Or are they themselves the shadowed embodiments of another light that has failed? And what does any of this have to do with Jewish American writers? Nothing. Everything. Everything. Thank you. doctor, I was very nicely agreed to take a few questions if I will repeat them for him. So I guess I'll stand here and be a repeater if there are any questions that like to come from the audience. Yes. question is in, in your reading of early, your early reading in Dickens, etc., what was your reaction to the anti-Semitic and racist passages that you came across? Yeah, uh, it was not only Dickens. Uh, uh, you find anti-Semitic references in, uh, uh, certainly in uh, Dostoevsky. You find them in Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. Um, I've always understood um, uh, these references to uh, indicate the essential um, nature of the imperfect form of the novel and the um, uh, the imperfections of the writer's mind. Nothing I've said here today would suggest, I hope, that novelists are perfect human beings. Yes. question is if um, yes if you will comment on the place of New York in your writings particularly um, the waterworks and city of God not just New York as a as a thing but New York as an urban texture as a particular texture a particular uh, scene um, uh, all, all writers have two homes the uh, home they live in and the home for their imagination uh, for instance, Jack London was a Californian, but the home for his imagination was the Yukon, was the Great North. He needed snow to get going. <laughs> Some of us are fortunate enough to have a coincidence of the home we live in and the home of our imagination. And uh, I'm one of those fortunate people. Uh, it, was, it was only with the waterworks that people began to talk to me or about my stuff is that, that I was somehow a New York novelist. I never realized that. 
Um, I've never thought of consciously setting a book in New York. For me, New York is life. That's all. <laughs> and um, it just happens that way. Uh, I, I also feel that having uh, been born and raised and lived most of my life in or around New York, that I am comfortable in any city in the world. I've discovered that, except maybe Calcutta. <laughs> yes, ma'am. What is your next book? <clears throat> when I know, I'll be sure to let you know. <laughs> I had a feeling that was going to be a nice short answer. Yes, in the back. Sir. Yes. The, um, he buys your, your argument that uh, there is a secular route to literature, but what about music, painting, the other arts where the exaltation of the sacred seems to be inevitable? Is that a fair? That's what I do for a living. Would anyone like to answer that question? I, I think that's your next paper, sir. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, sir. This is, this is the tinkers to ever to chance question. Um, um, how do we get, we've got, we've, got, we've got the connection between Singer and uh, Dr. O, but the question is where does Sholem Aleichem fit in to your sense of yourself, period? Are you a Sholem Aleichem scholar? Amazing how, how you can ferret things out just from listening to the question. I had the privilege of the other night of addressing the uh, Melville Society on the uh, 150th anniversary of Moby Dick, and after the uh, after the talk, an amazing thing happened. Melville's great grandson came up to say hello. And the genealogy is unmistakable. I mean, he had the beard, he had the eyes, he had everything. It was really weird. <laughs> uh, as for uh, my view, literary view of Sholem Aleichem's uh, stories, um, uh, see me after class. <laughs> One more question. Ma'am. Did you all hear that? The question is in World's Fair, and I suppose in any of the novels, um, how much is pure recollection and how much, how much of it may be based on research? Uh, you you start writing and um, um, when your memory fails you um, if you're working well you turn yourself into kind of a magnet 
and whatever you need comes out of the air, comes to hand. And um, that's my definition of research. Uh, for instance, with ragtime, I decided to send his father and her little girl by a trolley cars from New York up to Lawrence, Massachusetts. And, and I knew there was a well-developed system of interurban railways, but I didn't know if it was possible to actually do that. And I thought I'd better find some authority to justify what I was saying. I didn't know how to go about that. And I was wandering around the library one day, and there was a shelf of oversized books, and my hip happened to bump into one of them. And it had a bright orange cover, and I picked the book up, and it was a history of trolley car companies in America. And it told me everything I needed to know about... Uh, that's research. <laughs> Thank you very much. See you later.